Thanks, Eric, and the team. Wonderful music. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. You'll find the passage we're looking at also in your worship folder. It's good to be back. I've been away so long, I was wondering whether I'd even find my way to the pulpit again. You know, where is it? Uh, So it feels a little, you know, um, I've got some extensive notes this morning. Um, And uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 8 together. um, And what I believe that God is saying to us this morning from his word is the following. I believe that God is saying that he wants the followers of Jesus to play a certain song, and that song is freedom. Uh, If you have uh, an iPhone, or not wanting to be market-specific here, an LG or a Samsung or whatever, you will know that when you um, press play, there's a little icon for the music. It's like a pointy arrow. You, you click on that, and then the music begins to play. We, we play different songs in our head. We have different um, refrains going on, different messages going on. I believe that God is saying to us today from his word that Jesus wants his followers to play a particular song, and that particular song is the song of Freedom. Now, we're looking at Romans 8. We're beginning this new series in Romans 8 under the banner title of Confident. And the reason why we're doing that is because, well, Romans chapter 8 is simply this. It is the greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written. No pressure. Don't mess this one up, preacher. And uh, its theme is assurance, but uh, I've called it confident or confidence because whenever I say assurance, I feel like a New England Puritan. I'm looking around for a big pointy hat with a buckle. So confidence begins with no condemnation and it concludes with no separation. It is a series of words that reverberate with the love of God. It has a theme of the spirit, a theme of hope, and then a celebration song. No condemnation, no separation. And we're looking this morning at verses 1 to 2, and what I'm saying here is I want us to press play a particular song here in these verses, that is freedom. Now when we say freedom, we need to understand freedom in the way the Bible means it, which means becoming all that God wants us to be, all that we are made to be. So that's how I understand the word freedom, as we will see from these two verses. Let's hear God's word. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, goes like this. There is therefore now no condemnation. I feel like I just need to stop there. What an extraordinary statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus 
from the law of sin and death. Play, freedom. Verse one, play, press play on this verse for it is true. Play which song? Freedom, verse two. Freedom that is true freedom, righteous. Press play on verse one for it is true. Paul says, there is therefore now no. It is a very staccato series of words. There is therefore now no. It has the feel of a drum roll. I actually did that on the pulpit at 9.30 and I think I broke a finger. (laughs) Or fanfare, these big trumpets behind me, blasting out. Bam, 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 bam. There is therefore now no. Such a strange way of expressing it, it is that some people have wondered whether this particular text is inserted at this point and didn't originally belong there. (laughs) Paul is doing everything he can to underline the extraordinary truth that he is teaching. There is therefore now no. Bam, 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 bam. And if you're like me, you think to yourself, well, how on earth could this be true? And of course, what Paul is saying here depends upon what he's been saying, the first seven chapters of Romans, which if I was to recap in full detail, we would probably be here until the evening service at six six o'clock, yeah, five o'clock Saturday night, six o'clock Sunday evening. It's hard to keep up with these things when you've been away for a while. And so I will not fully recap, but let me just give it to you in a little phrase. In the first seven chapters, Paul is saying, nothing else works. Religion, that doesn't work. If anyone would know that religion didn't work, it would be Paul, the Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. He tried that, it didn't work. Romans chapter 2, he describes what he'd learned about this, where he says, you therefore, O man, are without excuse, you who pass judgment on others. The religious spirit tends to look down at other people because in a certain kind of way, the, the man or woman who is trying their best to do what is right before God does live a more clean and more pure life than other people. In a certain kind of way, and yet before God, he who breaks the law at one part breaks it at all parts. And you, therefore, a man, are without excuse, you who pass judgment on others, for you do the same things. That is, you do not live up to God's holy, holy, holy is the Lord, his standards. Religion doesn't work. Perhaps you've been trying that. Perhaps you've been trying that as you grew up in a Christian family. You've been trying to be good. And yet it's never enough. And so you try to be yet more good. Let me tell you, it will never be enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Religion doesn't work. And then at the opposite extreme, the prodigal son goes off and tries something completely different. And they get to the end of their rope or the pig husks 
and they find that doesn't work either. Paul describes that in chapter one where he has this succession of steps of increasing, moving further away from God until the prodigal ends up eating pig's food and opens his eyes and says, surely there's something better than this. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you've realized that religion doesn't work and now you're going to try something else. You're going to party when no one's looking at Whedon College. You are going to try this or that or the other. I uh, listened to a podcast this summer of... uh, uh, I, I did some listening to podcasts because I discovered that some of them are free, which is good because it means you don't have to pay for them. And uh, one of the podcasts I listened to was of a sports star icon. And he, you know what it's like being a, an elite athlete. You have to train your body. You have to get up early. You have to watch your diet. You exercise and exercise and exercise. He'd done this for 10 or 20 years or so. He retired from sports and he decided to go in the opposite direction. He spent 10 years just doing whatever. And at the end of those 10 years, he discovered... It doesn't work. As Paul had found out in his own life, he described in chapter 7, he tried to keep God's law, he could not keep his law, he did not do what he wanted to do. It's what the whole of ancient society discovered. You know, when you read about things that are going on in current events, you think this is as bad as it's ever been. You just need to read about ancient Rome and it's far worse. It doesn't work. Religion doesn't work. (laughs) Giving yourself to run in the opposite direction doesn't work. Nothing else works. There is therefore now no, like a a drum roll. (laughs) There is therefore now no. It is true that only in Christ Jesus can there be no condemnation, for he alone lived a perfect life, and he died that we might live. It is the truth. Nothing else works at a human level, certainly before a divine, holy, magnificent, almighty, eternal being, Only God in human flesh, living the perfect life, dying for sinners like you and me, only that works. Nothing else works. It's true. Is it real? Does it it feel real? Paul says here, there is therefore now no condemnation. And I don't know about you, but I read that phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation, and a little voice immediately kind of comes into my head like a scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anyone seen that movie? It's a Chicago movie, guys, come on. And there's a little voice, like a kind of little snarky, kind of fun, sarcastic voice. Yeah, right. I I feel condemned sometimes. There is therefore now no condemnation, not, not much condemnation or 
not condemnation on a good day. There is therefore now no condemnation. Really? Maybe it's true, but is it, is it real? Does it reverberate with actually our life experience? Well, first we need to understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying by the word condemnation. The word condemnation, according to the best dictionaries and the best experts and the best commentaries, means as follows. It has a word picture. The picture of condemnation is this, of a man who has been sentenced before a court and then he goes to jail and he is awaiting punishment. And in that place in jail, he is under condemnation. So this is not about feelings. This is about a factual, objective state, a doom, a fate, a punishment that is coming because the sentence has been passed. And what Paul is saying is because that condemnation was taken by Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation because he took it all. And you're still saying, is this real? Because I don't feel that. It's a huge issue in our culture today. I did some research on this over the summer. Did you know that every year there is a 10% increase of people applying for cosmetic surgery? 10% increase every year. What does that say about how we feel about whether we are good enough or look good enough? Now, personally, I gave up the idea of getting cosmetic surgery a long time ago. It's about when I started playing rugby, you know. But, you know, us men, you know, are our biceps big enough? Um, You know, do you have a six-pack? You know, I have have a two-pack. I feel pretty pleased by that. It's actually not just in the West. The highest number of cosmetic surgeries are taking place in Brazil, where last year 1.5 million procedures occurred. Perhaps you just don't feel like you're good enough because you're not sure you look good enough. Huge issue in the upcoming generation, the millennials, those under 25, because as they grew up, they've been told over and over again that if... You know, you can do whatever you want to do. You, you, know, you just have to set your mind to it and you can be it. You know, I've met with people who tell me, you know, I'm really disappointed because I'm not sure I'm going to become president of the United States. You know, not many people become president in any given year. <laughs> and yet there's this huge expectation. And then when it doesn't seem like it's real and you don't match up, book was written a few years ago called Fight Club, which I could not quote from, from the pulpit, otherwise I'd be out of a job on Monday morning, but it describes this sense of people of this generation feeling like they've been set up to succeed, and then they go and work, and it's not quite what they thought it would be. It's not just about how we look, it's about whether we're attaining what we are expected to attain, and we feel condemned. 
We come in here to church and there is therefore now. So it's true. Nothing else works. Only in Christ. What's true? No condemnation. But is that real? Is that what I feel? How do we, how do we appropriate this? Um, when I was uh, growing up, I grew up going to a different kind of school than most people in America grew up. It was very old school. And uh, the situation there was that we had a whole series of desks. So you, you, know, you sat at your individual desk, and they were in rows of two or three or four. And where you sat in those desks was dependent on how you did in your exams in any particular week. So if you did poorly, you sat front left, you know, you, within reach of the teacher, like the people sitting at the front, within reach of the preacher, you know. And if you did well, you sat back right. You know, like, oh, I did well this week. And every single week, depending on how your exams went, you shifted a position. Or, in my case, you stayed pretty much front left. <laughs> I, come, I come from a background of a lot of kind of intellectual achievement. At least it seemed to me like that growing up. I had... I had um, I, I had a lot of migraines or migraines, depending on how you pronounce it over here. I don't know. Migraines, you know, bad headaches. And they were every week, every month for about a week or so, I was just incapacitated. And so I sat front left. Or maybe a little to one side occasionally. And the message to me was very clear. You know, you sit front left. And then gradually, as I, uh, for one reason or another, uh, I started to do a bit better. Along the way, I picked up a few degrees. I ended up doing some study at one of the Ivy League universities uh, here in the States. As you know, Ivy League universities are not always, um, this is a big general statement, uh, but they're not always the most hospitable places to Orthodox Christianity, right? There are real Christians there, don't get me wrong, I know they are. We, we planted a church next to one of them, but you know, there, there are real Christians there, but they're not always the most hospitable places to Orthodox, Bible-believing Christianity. I tell you this, I never once felt criticized or condemned. Now, the faith I believed was criticized and condemned all the time. I didn't feel that way. You know why? Because I had in some drawer or other a whole stack of diplomas and degrees sort of growing mold. I didn't care what they said. God in Christ Jesus, if you are a real follower of Jesus, has declared over your life no condemnation. None. Not only on Sunday, but not on Monday, but none. None. And then someone comes along and says, well, maybe, you know, you need to fix your nose because it's broken like mine was two or three times. Or maybe someone comes along and says, you know, you're not very good because you don't do well enough at school. Or you're not very good because you're not earning enough money. Or you're you're not very good because your children don't do as well as someone else's children in the church. 
and you feel condemned. And it doesn't mean that you don't learn from good examples and try and do better, but because of this truth, you're free. There's no condemnation. Press play on verse 1, for it is true, it is real, but it comes with a condition. There is therefore now no condemnation is not what the text says. Not in full. Paul does not finish his sentence here by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation. He does not say that. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a condition, namely being in Christ Jesus. There is one condition, namely being in Christ Jesus and no one else. For nothing else works. And only in him is there no condemnation. Uh, My friends, I am fully aware how difficult a line that is to hold in today's culture. People read that and they say, what about other religions? What about Islam? What about Buddhism? What about Hinduism? What about other religions? What about other worldviews, other cultures, other ideologies? How on earth can we at College Church say there is therefore now no condemnation only if you're in Christ Jesus? Isn't that condemnatory? How ironic that the people who preach no condemnation only preach it for themselves but for everyone else they condemn. How can we answer that kind of charge? Which, by the way, is rather condemnatory against us. Let me give you one illustration which I think may help. Imagine, if you will, that there's a man in the ocean. And there's just a wide expanse of water all around him as far as the horizon can see. And he's treading water, and he's he's trying to keep his head above water. And he's wondering how long he's going to survive. Joy of joy, there's a lifeboat. He does not say to himself, there's only one lifeboat. How outrageous. I want there to be two or three. Why? Because he know he, because nothing else works, either at a human level or certainly before a holy God. If you believe the truth of Romans 1 to 7, you grab onto the lifeboat. You press play on verse 1. For it is true, it is real, and it is only in Christ Jesus. 
And that leads to freedom. What kind of freedom? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. Let's look at verse 2. Paul says this. For the law of the spirit of life. So he's making a connection. For the law of the spirit of life has set you. It's individual. So he's applying now. Each of us individually. Has set you free. In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. These are some of the most compact and profound words ever written. And I want to get them and their explanation precise. And so I am going to have it right here to explain for you precisely. Here it is. The slave song, he's comparing. Slave song with freedom song. Press play, press play on a particular song, freedom song. Here he's comparing. The slave song is the law of sin and death. That is, it is the human condition that when we hear God's law, part of us wants to obey it and part of us does not. That's what we're like. We want to be good at a certain level, but then we find we do not want what we want, and we do not do what we want. And so the law, which is good, becomes for us a law of sin and death. Why? Because it shows us the reality of the human condition, that we're in that ocean needing a lifeboat. This has been Paul's argument in chapter 7, which he is now summarizing, and I could illustrate in a sentence like this. Take a mouse, put it in a mouse cage with a wheel that it can run around, and that mouse will spin that wheel. Take a human, tell it God's law, and it will in part want to obey at a certain level, and in part not want to obey, and find that often it does not obey. This is the law of sin and death. It is the human condition. And so Paul has said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But hold on, Paul, how do I live in that freedom? How do I live as as I'm meant to be? How do I put to death the deeds of the flesh? How do I break the bondage of... uh, sexual addiction or feeling condemned or not being able to live up to the expectations of your dad or whatever it is. How do I live in the fullness of the freedom of the children of God? How, how can we be set free? Well, Paul says, by the law of the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit of God is, though, able to make us humans free, you and me. He, the Spirit, He takes the message of the cross of Jesus and applies it to us in such a way that we believe in God, have our sins forgiven, and our empowered in His strength to follow Jesus. The Bible declares that by faith we are righteous before God. The Spirit is able to apply that message to our hearts so that we believe it. 
The Bible declares that we're free in Christ to follow God and keep his moral law, which is freedom. The Spirit is able to take that message and empower us to become more and more freely the people God always designed us to be, you and me to be. Uh, when we first came to Wheaton, we only had one car. And uh, I still got that car. It's, a, it's an old car. It's done 150,000 miles. I love it. It's got rust all over it. It's falling apart, but it's great, you know? You know, you've got these kind of historic things. You remember where you were when you drove it to do this, that, and the other. We call it the Green Dragon at home. And uh, anyway, so there's that car. But when we just had that car, when we uh, arrived in Wheaton, uh, I didn't, we didn't have another car, and yet you know, we live about a mile or so away from the church, so the family needed a car to do its things, and I needed somehow to get to church. So some very kind people lent us a sort of succession of cars while we're trying to figure out what to do about this. And one of the cars that I was lent was an older car. It, it was not classic, but an older car, but a nice car. It was a, a, a BMW, an older BMW. Now, this is not the story of the BMW I got a free upgrade for and drove around and was rather embarrassed when I went to a missions conference with a brand new BMW. That's another story. <laughs> I do recycle my stories, but I'm just telling you it's not that one. This is not a recycle. So there I am, I'm driving along, I'm going to some meeting or other, and I um, can't remember exactly what, what I was going to, but uh, I, I do remember that it started to sort of shudder. You know, it's clearly something wrong. Now, for those of you who know me, I am about as good at fixing things as an elephant is at flying. I cannot fix anything. I've had people, when I've tried, just tell me, next time, call me. You're that bad, Right? So, you know, it's driving along, it's starting to make some shuddering noises, so I just keep going. I mean, you know, um, this is in Wheaton, and eventually the thing just dies. So I'm stuck there in a Wheaton, it's just out on that road over there. And, uh, well, I feel like as a man, I need to at least pop the hood. <laughs> That's what you do. So I pop the hood, get out of the car, I... Um, Peer under the hood, yep. <laughs> Definitely an engine. <laughs> and I sort of poke around. You know, the people walking past, so I need to sort of poke around as if I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and eventually, of course, I give up. I have no idea. And uh, I call the man who lent me the car, and he kindly comes along. He has another car that he lends me while he figures out what's wrong with this one. I go off to the meeting or whatever it was I was doing next, and uh, a few days later I call him up. I'm sort of interested, you know, so what was, what was wrong with the car? Out of gas. <laughs> it's pretty bad, but true. Are you running on empty? Are you running out of gas? 
Son of man, can these dry bones live? Only you know, Lord. Prophesy to them. And the valley of dry bones, the prophet preached, and they knit together and stood like a scene from the walking dead, except they're not walking. And the Spirit of God breathes upon them, and they live. Listen, my brothers and sisters, this is not a human thing. I'm going to give you a few tips and insights and practical applications, but this is not a human thing. This is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. This is something supernatural, to use that kind of terminology. I was preaching at our South Wheaton campus last night, and uh, we, there was a little sort of vision weekend for that campus this weekend, and we, we were talking about why the leadership had initially got them uh, set that ball rolling. I'm saying, look, the, you know, you have a mission. It's, it's to reach South Wheaton. Sort of mission impossible. Go do it. And then we said, well, how about if we look up to God? It's only South Wheaton. How hard can that be? We as a church have a vision that God would increasingly grow us to be the people that he has designed us to be, to be more in line with the truth of the gospel. And as we together from pulpit, from home, from classroom, from small groups, proclaim that gospel, God would increasingly, through us, change the world. We're only talking about the whole world here. I mean, you know. But then we look up to God. Who has not only the world in his hand, as the song says, but the whole universe. How hard can it be? Are you running out of gas? running on empty, running on fumes. Do you think our culture is running out of gas? Our country, the evangelical church, is running out of gas? Someone this week reminded me of the description of what the world was like right before the Great Awakening. There was a chapter that he uh, uh, photocopied for me and gave me. The title of that chapter was Spiritual and Moral Conditions Before the Revival. That's a title for a bestseller today, right? But listen to this. It's so insightful for the work of the Spirit. Listen. For the past 30 years, numerous evangelical people have been saying, there can never be another revival. The times are too evil. Sin is now too rampant. We are in the midst of apostasy and the days of revival are gone forever. Sounds like about 50 blogs I read last week. The historian carries on. The history of the 18th century revival entirely contradicts that view. It demonstrates that true revival is the work of God, not man. 
of God who is not limited by such circumstances as the extent of human sin or the degree of mankind's unbelief. He describes what the decade was like before the awakening, how in the country every fifth home was a gin shop. That is, there was a kind of heroin or crack cocaine craze. He says, in the decade between 1730 and 1740, the life of the whole country was foul with moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. Yet it was amidst such conditions, conditions remarkably similar to those of the English-speaking world today. That God arose in the mighty exercise of his power. became the revival. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Let us pray for the work of that spirit together. Our Lord, I ask that you would help us to press play, to believe and accept the truth of this verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we would understand and believe that nothing else works on a human level or on a divine level, that we will grasp what it means to have been declared righteous before the courts of God And therefore, internal voices of condemnation, external voices of condemnation would be muted in their effect in our lives. Lord, save us from religious arrogance and save us from being imprisoned in a jail of condemnation that is no longer true or real because we have been set free. You help us press play on that verse. Would you help us to live with this true freedom, the law of the spirit of life, living as we were designed to be, following God's moral law with Enthusiasm, because it is God that we are obeying and pleasing, for it is for Jesus that we serve. Lord, I'm reminded of uh, one great preacher from years ago who would say the reason why he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit was because he leaked. Or would you fill with your Holy Spirit this morning the mother who feels that uh, she is condemned at some eternal level because her child is acting up? Or would you fill with the Holy Spirit the businessman who is carrying so many responsibilities for so many people, he's not sure how he can get through another day? Or would you fill with your Holy Spirit the teacher who is dreading going to 
class tomorrow to look out at those faces who he fears do not want to learn from him. Lord, would you fill the Holy Spirit, the student, who fears that he will not live up to his parents' expectations or his school's expectations. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might live and proclaim your gospel for your great glory. Lord, when you set us free, we're free indeed. And we have a strong and perfect plea. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.